Hi there, I'm Dan or Danny Jones. Welcome to the podcast if you're just joining us for the first time, and welcome back if you're a returning listener. On this podcast, we have longer format informal conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. Today, I'm really happy to bring you this conversation with Tom Slater. Tom Slater is a research fellow at the NERC Center for Polar Observation and Modeling at the University of Leeds. He uses satellites to study the Antarctic and Greenland ice sheets with a focus on satellite radar altimetry, which maps changes in ice height over time. We recorded this back in March, which is why we talk a little bit about it being the one-year anniversary of doing remote working and that at the time things were starting to look a little bit more hopeful. So that's just where we were when we recorded this episode. It's taken us a little bit of time to get it all produced and, and out there and released to you. Tom has a paper from 2020 that is in Nature Climate Change titled Ice Sheet Losses Track High-End Sea Level Rise Projections. And this was picked up by the media and you can find a, a lot of coverage on it out there on the internet. And the conversation that we had today, we talked about a lot of different things. We touched on the discussion around the despair on climate change and how there's sort of a, sometimes a feeling of giving up and a feeling of that uh, giving up on any mitigation attempts because things look so horribly, insurmountably bad. That's a, that's a kind of climate inaction. We discussed this as a kind of climate inaction as well. You know, it's actually kind of not that different from sort of just denying that the problem exists. So that was, that was a really interesting part of the conversation. There's a case here. There's a case we talked about how can you be optimistic in a pragmatic way, you know, that kind of pragmatic, practical, kind of stoic optimism in a way. That's something that is an interesting kind of place to explore. And I think there's some, there's some good reasons that you could plant your feet in that space and be pragmatic and be optimistic. We also discussed what it was like doing science in the pandemic and during the lockdowns, as well as the constraints on time. And, you know, some people had to do homeschooling and all that. Tom made a really interesting point that coming up with new research ideas is a creative process, as we've talked about on this show many times before. And uh, lockdowns and the pandemic have really made creativity difficult for many people. They kind of stifle some of that um, generative process, some of the raw materials that people need for that generative process. It just makes it harder to get in touch with some of those. We also touched on how it's important not to be too consumed, not to be too fixated on your citation count. Um, you know, Google Scholar sort of obnoxiously throws it right up to the researcher's headshot. That's not necessarily a good thing. It's really, you know, boiling us down to a simple metric or two is, uh, well, I don't know, it's pretty unfair. Um, the, that argument would mean more coming from somebody with a big old citation count. So I, I occasionally do hear people with big citation counts and big H indices talking about how... Uh, inappropriate or not helpful it is to really fixate on that stuff, on these metrics that we make up. So it's uh, it's comforting with somebody with a who's kind of winning the game we've all made up uh, to, uh, to, to point out how silly the game is and how silly some of those metrics can be. That actually reminds me of a great point that Chris Jackson, Christopher Jackson made uh, on a webinar that he gave at the British Antarctic Survey. And I'm going to try to paraphrase here. He talked about the you know, fixation on H indices and citation counts in the context of 
equality and diversity and inclusion. And he said something basically along the lines of the indiscriminate use of citation counts, of the H index, and of all these metrics that we've made up to uh, to feel insecure about. <laughs> that if we use those metrics indiscriminately, uh, that it actually has bad outcomes for, for people who come from kind of underrepresented, historically excluded groups. Well, if you're in the in-group, then it's more likely you'll be plugged into the whole social part of science and the whole networking and connection part of science, which, as many of you know, that ultimately is an important part of how you get your science noticed and how you get people to interact with the work that you've done and, and cite it. The social part of it is is there. It's big. It's certainly not something to be dismissed. So it could be just that much harder for someone coming from a historically excluded group to make their way into that social circle and thereby if we focus too much on those indices and metrics we could end up excluding some some excellent scientists and losing a lot of potential uh, from that EDI perspective. Tom had an interesting route into science. It's a bit different from normal in that he was not interested in science at school and he wasn't really sure what he wanted to do at university. He did business studies for a year but didn't enjoy it. He dropped out, worked at Sainsbury's, which is a grocery chain here in the UK. He did a few open university courses before choosing to study physics. And now he's, you know, really doing excellent, really interesting work. So I, I really like to hear this kind of non-traditional pathways. That's really interesting. Many, many different pathways are, are valid. The traditional pathway is, is valid as well. But there's many, many different possible ways that you can approach getting into science and, and doing that kind of work. Okay, so there's a little bit of background noise in the conversation. There might be a microphone rubbing against some clothing here and there. Uh, we, we're going to try to clean that up the best we can, but I can't make any guarantees, so there might be some sounds here. But let's go ahead and get into this conversation with Tom Slater. Here we go. Thanks very much for joining us. No, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, great. So, um, so I don't know if I guess you haven't met us before. You know, I'm Dan, the host, and uh, so I'm an oceanographer working at Bass at the British Antarctic Survey. And uh, I started this thing a few years ago because I like learning from researchers and talking to other researchers. Um, and then Ella has recently joined me as a regular co-host, so she's now at Reading. Um, Still uh, living in London, working in writing, and uh, is a cloud cloud climate person, and uh, yeah, and she she specifically wanted to talk to you. She, uh, um, you know, we were having that conversation about uh, possible guests, and uh, she mentioned your your name and uh, invited you, and you graciously accepted. So thanks thanks for that. I appreciate it. No, thank you. Um, it's real. Uh, I was really very not very nice to be asked. So thank you. Um, very new to Great. podcasting. So. Yeah, I'm really excited <laughs> to to talk to you and hear about all the exciting work you've been doing. I've been admiring your papers from a distance, so oh. I thought, you know, it'd be um, nice to get it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Oh, thank, you. <laughs> thank you. It's a very um, professional microphone. I, I feel very um, under underwhelmed by my setup, which is just... A... <laughs> I bought this during my PhD because I started a thing about um ice shelf science um and haven't <laughs> used it in probably since 
2018 so i dug it out from under my bed so it's getting an outing so yeah you know nice it sounds good <laughs> sounds yeah, good to my ears yeah, yeah. maybe yeah, i should use it more often it seems to yeah. be quite good sometimes if i have my whole setup here uh plugged in um you know if i have other meetings i'll just leave this on because it's just I've, i'm already set up and i just <laughs> go into these other meetings with these really professional microphones <laughs> <laughs> just flexing on everyone funny. else in the zoom meeting <laughs> I was, like, I, was trying to, level up. <laughs> I was trying to log into this and i was like what a, how does my laptop know my headphones and and you know we've been doing this a year and every time i have to share my screen in a in a meeting i'm like how do i share my screen and can everybody this, see mm. the slides yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i can i can relate to that it, it has been a year roughly since we've been doing this the uh, remote working thing more regularly yeah and you're right we're still having the same problems and the same conversations we we've learned a little bit about it but we still have a lot of the same issues yeah yeah um god forbid if i have to use teams then i'm I'm really lost if someone wants to speak to teams so ella i don't know i mean i kind of was very happy to let you take the lead on this and kind of push ahead. Sure. What do you think? Do you want to, do you want to jump in and yeah, sure. Um, I mean, where do you, where do you want to go? You want to take, take the wheel, I guess. Is... <laughs> Rubbish. I can't drive. This is going to be dangerous. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess maybe we can just start by talking about a bit of your recent work. So you do a lot of remote sensing, don't you, Tom? Yeah. Maybe you yeah, could Matt. talk a bit about like your, your interests and, Tell us about what sort of remote sensing tools you use and why you enjoy using them and all sorts of things like that. Yeah, sure. So um, I mainly use a technique called altimetry, um, which uh, is which basically measures the height of the surface of the Earth from space using a satellite. Um, there are many others that we can use to measure ice loss in particular, which is what I've been focused on since I started my PhD uh, and we can talk about all of those but my um the one I know most about is is, is altimetry um so it, it works in the same way as um I guess a speed camera or you know those radar guns pol you know police have in, in 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 I don't know if they're actually real or not um <laughs> but it, uh in essence it fires uh fire, I mean, fires that's a I won't use that that's an aggressive word it sends out a um <laughs> Pulse of electromagnetic radiation, either radar or laser. Um, I like the radar kind because that's what I'm used to. And then it basically just um, records the time it takes for that pulse to travel to the surface and be reflected back. And that's the very basic principle. And that's uh, things can get more complicated when you're over ice or if the surface isn't flat. But it's a, a really powerful tool. Altimetry in particular, you can resolve individual glaciers and you can see how they're thinning. Or, or thickening in some in some cases, um, and that tells you a lot about the glaciology um, and what's happening there. And what I've used them for particularly recently is to measure mass balance. So you can relate the change in height to the change in mass through the the density, and that's what I've been doing in Antarctica and Greenland. And does that take into account the sort of isostatic effects? So you get the effect of gravitational mass changes where. The, the, I mean, I'm not. I'm going to explain this really badly, but <laughs> basically, where you get rebound because there's less yeah. weight on top of the Earth. Yeah, that's, so that's right. the isostatic thing. So yeah. if you take 
take a glacier off of the planet, just imagine there's going to be some rebound where the the crust or the the continent is re- rebounding, and yeah, because of the the weight's not on it anymore. Yeah, that's right. The lithosphere adjusts according to to the load. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's so we we do account for that. I think the, the in terms of altimetry, it's not as much of an important signal, um, but we we do have to um, kind of tease out what are the height changes that are associated with mass changes. Um, but it's, it's it's pretty robust now, and and so there are three or the two other satellite techniques, and and they all agree with each other really within their respective uncertainties. So we think we have a pretty good handle of what's um, what's going on. You mentioned uh, laser. That you sometimes that you're you're more comfortable with the radar data. What's the difference there? You said there's one that you're more used to. Uh, you know, I I'm naively wouldn't expect that much of a difference, but there must be some contrast there that you're aware of. Yeah. So um, I use um, particularly I, uh, I've been using a satellite since my PhD and, and through to now in my postdoc. I use Cryosat two, and that was launched by the European Space Agency back in 2010, and that's a radar altimeter. And to, uh, historically, NASA have launched laser altimeters, so they had uh, ISAT um, a few years ago, and then uh, maybe 10 years ago. I can't remember the dates. I should know them, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but uh, two years ago, they launched ISAT-2, which again is a laser. Um, and it's the same principle. The laser is, is, is uh, in, in ISAT-2, it counts individual photons, so it can track the time it takes for individual photons to to, to be reflected back. Um, wow. And the difference is 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 largely resolution. So radar altimeters they send like a spherical pulse, so they have a larger footprint. It can it can be so to order the order of a couple of kilometers. So the signal you're seeing is like um you know a, a, an average of, of the, the 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 scattering surfaces within that footprint. Um, and the laser is much more uh, finer resolution. It's like um, on the order of meters. So there's been some really cool papers coming out from um, ISAT two where it can it will. So if you have like a really crevassed area, you know, for example, in like Yakubshaven where it's flowing really fast, it will range in these crevasses, and you can you can see these crevasses. And there are also other other cool things it can do because it's it's green light, so it will um, travel through water a bit. So they've been using it to you can detect the depth of like um glacial lakes on the surface um oh, cool we can measure the depth of that as well but radar altimetry is also you know really powerful there's, there's a there's a 25 year record of that i don't know if i mentioned that the first radar altimeter was launched in 1992 i think um mm. there, was, there was specifically well no there was there was a couple in the 70s actually but then there was a big gap um but we've got a continuous record from the 1990s so there's there's 25 years mm. of radar altimetry now and that's that's really powerful and that's been really important in 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 illustrating the changes that have, have happened um in greenland and antarctica yeah. just out of curiosity can you do much with sea ice measuring sea ice extent and maybe even thickness i know thickness is harder yeah so uh, um altimetry uh, i'm sea ice is not my area of expertise but i i'm mm-hmm. i'm i'm fairly certain that Altimetry is 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 the main way to to detect sea ice thickness from space, because um, you get the the freeboard, so you can you can detect, you know, even the, the, these altimeters are really precise to like centimeters. So you can you can even if like the 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 sea ice is really thin on the surface, you can distinguish that from the sea level, um, mm. and then you can use you have to know something about how much snow is on there, and um, that we can approximate that mm. pretty well. 
and then you can just okay. use hydrostatic equilibrium and, and, and estimate the thickness. Are we um, kind of imagining looking at the sea ice from the side a little bit? So you're not necessarily look, looking like straight down at the top of it. You're looking at it slightly off to the side so you could see the, the freeboard is the bit that's sticking out of the water, right? Like how much of the yeah, sea exactly. ice is sticking out of there. Yeah. yeah, but the altimeters do see straight down. They're nadir-looking instruments, so hmm. it, it will kind of I, see these changes in, in height. Oh. I remember hearing that you could calculate sea ice thickness and that the precision was like meters, centimeters kind of scale. And it blew my mind because being a kind of atmospheric modeler, thinking about like high resolution as being like a couple kilometers, yeah. <laughs> something no, like it's... that is mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I take it I take it for granted. I, for, um, you, you, uh, it's really easy to, for me personally, I've, I've I lose sight of how amazing these things are. They're, you know, the like Chrysart is seven hundred kilometers above us. It's it's floating around at about seven kilometers a second, and it can, you know, you can measure the the, <laughs> the height of the earth. You know, it's pretty cool, isn't it? Really, it's, think about yeah. that. <laughs> it's really I guess incredible. we all get desensitized to the coolness of our tools and our toys. Um, yeah. So it's always nice to hear about other people's, and also resolution is relative. I think I've learned. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's same with you know. I was I was talking about the difference between radar and laser altimetry, but they, you know, we, they they broadly show the, the the same things, which is great. Yeah. So I'm interested. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the the recent work you've done using these satellites, because I've seen you've published quite a few really cool papers recently. Has it all <laughs> been like they've all happened to come out at the same time, or are you just like prolific in terms of productivity? <laughs> I think I've been riding um, my, a, a wave of pre-lockdown creativity. I'm still excellent. I'm glad I've to got, hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the yeah, right, wave. yeah. I've, I had a lot. Of, <laughs> I, I managed to put some cash in the bank during my PhD, so to speak, and I've been um, I've been riding on that. I would say, you know, the last year has been um, successful, but you know, challenging for everyone and, and particularly unproductive. But it's you know we're all facing these challenges. Um, so yeah, I, I started out doing my PhD. Uh, it was based on altimetry, so I I I, um, I did a few studies just to as a way to like get myself acquainted because I I came from a physics background, so I had I had no uh, geography or remote sensing um, experience, so I just you know I was I was coming a bit blind. So it, it took me a long while to adjust actually to to um, you know working in this field. But I started out, I made. A digital elevation model of Antarctica uh, using nice. altimeters. Yeah, so that was a really good way to get acquainted with the data. Um, and I think it's seen. I've seen it's seen some use. I think people are. It's certainly not the best. <laughs> there, are, there might be other better ones. It was pretty. Uh, it was usurped quite quickly. I would say with these um, uh, mosaic DEMs from the. Uh, oh, I can't remember the technique now. But they, they, so my my DM was uh, one kilometer resolution. And that's probably that's 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 pushing it for for radar altimetry, I think. Um, but so you you can you... get sorry. Oh yeah, I was going to say. So you you made a digital model. Yeah, you said. So what what sort of things can you do with that? Is it essentially should, should I be picturing a kind of three D rendering of here's what this looks like, here's what the structure looks like, here's all the you know fine features of it. Um, does it change over time, or is it a static model that you're creating? See, this is a um, static model, um, but mm -hmm. 
It's true that we, we use altimetry to map the changes over time, and that's how we know about the, the thinning and of, of certain glaciers. But um, this is just a static model, and it's used um, for quite a few purposes. It's, it's I think maybe most importantly, it's it, it's a boundary uh, condition in, in, in ice sheet modeling, so particularly ones that are used to project changes in ice flow and, and sea level contribution. So they need to know the initial, like what the, the height of the ice is, um, because the flow is... is, is like sensitive, yeah, kind of sensitive to those initial conditions. Yeah, yeah, I've used them a lot in atmospheric modeling as well. Like, um, you, you can't, yeah. you have to have some estimate of the orography and the topography and uh, the coastlines. So, it's yeah, one exactly. of the most important inputs into any model. So, modelers right? commend you on your DEM. <laughs> Maybe not this one. I'm not sure about this one. Um, <laughs> oh, don't don't play it down. <laughs> What's orography? A- Sorry. Orography is the height of yeah. mountains. Mountains, okay. So, yeah. like topography. Topography, not mountains. <laughs> I guess topography is all land, and then orography okay. is mountains. I think okay. that's it, because you can no, get orographic rainfall, which is when yeah. the mountains force air upwards, and then it makes it rain. Okay, I guess yeah. I'm being an ocean person. Bathymetry is most of what I think about, and then you know. It's like bathymetry stuff. flipped upside down on land. <laughs> like that's the only way I can understand <laughs> is if you relate it to like, what's well, like the seafloor. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I find the you... same thing with the oceanographic stuff. <laughs> I guess you get topography mirrored. What's on the land, I guess, is mirrored in, underneath the uh, ocean surface, isn't it? I, I suppose. Mm. I think the exactly. orography can control wind as well, can't it? Um, oh, yes. Yeah, so it is, you're right. It's really important for surface mass balance. Um, but now you can get, there are amazing, you know, like meter resolution DMs. Um, wow. You know, you need, a, you need a big hard drive, but, if, you know, if you've got one there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely a big it's hard really drive. Good. Yeah. Is it useful for people making maps and things? Do they also... Like if you wanted to make a map of, you know, a glacier and here's where you can possibly safely hike on it, does that information get fed into the map making community at all? Yeah, they, they, they can be used to, to help guide fieldwork because um, you're right, they need to know, um, particularly if they want to, you know, plant a, a GPS uh, stake or something. Um, mm. It's important for planning. Yeah. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. You can get on a glacier, plant a GPS, I guess, receiver and transmitter or a little transmitter and then... You can use that to get something's position, the, the position of that part of the glacier really, really finely. Is that the idea of the GPS tracker? Yeah, I've never used them personally, but I, I, they, they, can, they can track ice velocity and, and things like that because you, can, you mm. can track their change in you know, where they move over time. So I guess they get if you stick one in ice sheet, it will get taken down um, with the flow of the ice. So I think you can right, use, yeah. um, use that information. Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that before really. So yeah, it was it was it was a nice way to get introduced to using al- altimetry. You know, I just took all the data I could and, and um, you know, learn how to process it to to just derive heights for it to start with, and then from there you can mm-hmm. move into um, getting the changes as well. So the raw data is a bunch of just kind of return times and signal reflections and things. I don't, I really don't know anything about the field. I apologize, but no, no, this uh, is it's, no. it's fine. <laughs> um, it, so yeah, that's the, the very lowest level of data. I would say most users don't use that. So the, yeah, the, the, the very, the fundamental 
data you get back is um, a histogram of the, the the power that's been scattered back as a function of time. Um, mm. And then from that, we call that a waveform. And then from that, you have to um, identify where which um, where the, the ice sheet surface is on that waveform. Um, it's pretty well constrained because you you get as soon as you get a really strong uptick in the received power that's corresponding to the surface, and then you have some some wider effects because sometimes the um, you get things that are scattering from further away, or sometimes the the radar will will travel a bit beyond the 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 snow surface, the fern surface, and you'll get some reflections from underneath as well. Um, so the, the 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 power kind of decays over time. So. Um, and then from that you can work out the height, and that's the the, the level of data that I would say most um, users will will get hold of. And certainly, I, I like to use. I have done some some work on the lower level stuff, but it's um it gets a bit gnarly, um, and <laughs> quite uh, yeah, it's quite it's quite um, it's challenging. So, but yeah, you so um, the space agency provide a just a series of high, uh, elevation measurements. You have to determine where it's come from because if the um if you can imagine if the ice sheet surface isn't flat um you you the the first return you get is is from whichever point of the ice sheet is, is closest to the satellite and if you have a slope then it might be further away from the the, the point directly below the satellite so you have to make some corrections ah. to to relocate and um, we call that the point of closest approach um, but chrysler has some really mm -hmm. clever ways of doing that it actually has two receive antenna and you can do um you can do some interferometry by just by looking at the difference in the wavelength between the mm -hmm. two received signals you can you can locate exactly where that 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 radar wave has come from oh nice okay i'm reminded of like we have two eyes and we our brain uses information from those two eyes to infer the three-dimensional position of something and um, i know it's not exactly the same thing if you're doing interferometry that's more about adding two wavelengths together and seeing if they constructively or de de destructively interfere with each other but it just reminded me of the value of those like multiple perspectives on the same thing yeah yeah, yeah. just like with anything it's always yeah. good <laughs> to have <laughs> multiple perspectives yeah yeah like multiple co-hosts for example yeah totally you know, <laughs> speaking of that i worry that i cut you off a minute ago ella did you want you were asking about general projects and things or we, uh... um yeah we can go back to that <laughs> i'd completely forgotten so <laughs> thanks for reminding me <laughs> yeah maybe maybe tom you could tell us a bit about um some of the work you've done in antarctica and greenland like looking at changes over time and the mass balance of those yeah sure so um i've been part of, of, of um something that's called the ice sheet mass balance into comparison exercise um, and I'm a member of, of that team that's that's run jointly um, uh, by ESA and, and NASA, um, and is co-led by my uh, supervisor Andy Shepard at Leeds. And uh, this um, basically um, takes community submitted estimates of of ice mass change from the three main satellite techniques, um, so altimetry, um, and then there's uh, graphimetry, um, which uh, uses um, a satellite called Grace, and that um, is two satellites that fly around in tandem. Um, and the distance between those satellites um, changes according to fluctuations in Earth's gravitational field. Um, mm. And you can use that to, to relate to changes in mass. And then there is something that we call the uh, input-output method. And that uses 
measurements of um, ice velocity. So there are uh, other types of satellites that can track uh, the movement of features like crevasses as, as um, over time, and you can use that to, to determine the speed of the ice. And then that tells you how much ice is being like discharged off, off into the ocean. Um, and then you can pair that with some knowledge of the, what's happening on the surface, so the snowfall and, and, and the melting, and you can add the two. So that's the input, and the ice flow is the, is the output. So is that equally as accurate? Because I mean, I'm quite, I'm fairly familiar with the sort of feature tracking method in terms of like measuring the acceleration of glaciers or watching where icebergs go, for example. But I guess as a kind of input output method, which I don't think I'd really put those two together before. um, I'm wondering how that translates and how how it compares with something like altimetry which sounds pretty precise yeah uh, it's re- it's not my area i i have done, never done any input output sort of work myself so i i don't want to um i don't want to certainly don't want to cast any aspersions on it i don't I, they, they, they all um and I don't mean to, I didn't mean to imply that that's what, <laughs> what I wanted. No, you to didn't do. imply that. That was me implying that. <laughs> <laughs> um, me dunking on it. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it certainly is. I mean, definitely, in detecting changes in, in in ice flow, it's it's very accurate. I suppose you you're relying on modelled information about the surface changes at the surface. Um, that's what I'm worried about given that Mm. that's kind of more my area and I know exactly how uncertain that is (laughs) (laughs) Um, but they they do all agree with each other within you know so that's and that was one of the outcomes we we not only used them um in this in this project to um to to you know overall get an overall you know combined sense of what's happening we compared them with each other as well and, and they all do agree and within their respective uncertainties, so that's great. And yeah, so I, I was, um, I helped. I was a co-author in, on these two papers. That um, one we did for Antarctica, and one again we the same we did for Greenland. Um, and and they both showed the same thing that you know that the the ice sheets were you know roughly in, in balance you know 30, 40 years ago. Um, and then over the past couple of decades, they've started to accelerate. And lose and lose more ice for, for for different reasons on both ice sheets. But we found that um, the the rate of change, the rate of loss had increased uh, sixfold, I think, between now and the nineteen nineties. So that's a huge wow, acceleration. It's not a long in, time, is it? No, and and when you think about in the you know the first IPCC reports in the nineteen nineties, they were you know they were saying that they didn't expect the ice sheets to respond on. You know, time scales shorter than a hundred years, and, and mm-hmm. just just in my lifetime, this is this is where we are now. Um, and sorry, which glacier system was that again? That has the sixfold increase. So combined, so um, both have accelerated. I, I can't I can't remember the numbers for the individual ones off the top yeah. of my head. Um, That's okay. So it, I think it's it's gone from like not point two millimeters a decade per per decade. In the '90s, to sea level rise, and now we're at, we're at 1.2 millimeters per decade, or something. Yeah. That might be wrong, but they're 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 on track to to be the dominant source of sea level rise this century. Certainly. I mean, that, the title of one of your papers it says ice sheet losses track high end sea level rise projections. It just says it all, doesn't it? It's saying yeah. that it's kind of towards the the scary end of of what 
was expected from IPCC reports in the 90s and even more recently than that. Mm. So I remember yeah. I read your paper and was alarmed. Sorry, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, so that's what that was my main thing. That's why, so I took these these um, mass balance data and I compared them to the the last most recent IPCC, which was AR five in two thousand and thirteen. And yeah, like you say, they, they were so they so they cast they 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 predict backwards in time a bit to like two thousand and seven, and then on towards the end of the century. So you have about 10 years or so of overlap. And the IPCC do, they, um, I find some of their terminology hard to access sometimes, but they, they split, they have a range of scenarios and then they split that into a, a lower range and mid range and an upper range. And, and as, as I said, they were, uh, we found that they were tracking the upper range. Yeah. Um, and I wrestled with, uh, I certainly don't want to alarm people. I, I, I wrestled with that when it, when it was doing the rounds in the media it just, uh, f- for me, it just um, means that we need to, it's, it's more of a, a tool that helps us see how well we're doing at projecting them. I, I, I don't want to, to imply that these worst case scenarios are, you know, gar- you know locked in or, or they're guaranteed to happen. It's just, this is where we are now. And then maybe we need to look at why, why there are differences between the models and the observations mm-hmm. and then that can be used to inform policy a bit better. Maybe I shouldn't have used the word alarmed, but I thought I did read it with interest, let's say. No, I think it's totally reasonable for, I mean, (laughs) you know, it's totally reasonable for people to be alarmed by these things. I just don't want people to be despaired. I think it's, you know, when when the, when it gets out in the media, it it takes, you know, these messages take on a new life, so to speak, don't they? And some journals yeah. do have a habit of being slightly more sensationalist. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Mm. <laughs> and how they frame results and how they present them and which aspects they decide to emphasize versus which aspects they maybe don't emphasize as much. Not hide, but you know, you can choose which parts of a science narrative to really bring out. Yeah. And mm. I was wondering, yeah. Tom, sorry if Dan, you have a question. Well, I was just going to, you know, kind of ramble on that particular idea of, I, I liked what you said about, that it's, it's not that you're trying to, there's a balance here, right? That it, you, it's perfectly reasonable to sound some alarm bells because this is a, it's a concerning result, but I like how you framed it carefully in terms of, yes, relative to the modeling that we're doing, the projections we're doing, like here's where the modeling scenarios suggest where we could be, could be headed and here's where the mass balance scenario suggests we're headed. Um, but there's still time to react to this. There's still time to uh, change policies and to change our energy infrastructure in response to this. It's not too late. And I think this is something Catherine Hayhill likes to say. I forget how she says it exactly, but it's something along the lines of, um, well, it's never too late. I mean, you can flip that on its head and you can say, well, it could always get worse, which is, is true. Like, it could, there's always a possibility of getting, getting even worse. Well, it's like, well, yeah, it's, it's not a good situation, but we can stop it from getting way, way, way worse if we take action now and prevent the you know possible worst case scenario. Yeah. Um, I think it's always yeah. a spectrum, isn't it? It's whether you have 
it's not like you have 1.5 degrees of warming at the end of the century versus mm. four. There's all the gray area in the middle and beyond. Yeah. So it's about implementing as many measures as we can, as soon as we can, to minimize that risk and yeah. make keep warming as low as possible. Yeah, yeah exactly. but d- d- despair and throwing your hands up and giving up is is also climate inaction. That's also another way to say, well, we shouldn't. Yeah, yeah it's I, another way to say we shouldn't do anything because oh it's already messed up which is that that's not a, a i think we should do something <laughs> yeah i fully I agree I, I you know i i see extreme denialism and, and extreme doomerism you know they're slightly two sides of the, the you know the same the same coin mm. the reality is always somewhere in between um yeah you you end up with the same result either way, don't you? Because both of them just say, don't do anything. Exactly. <laughs> and that's, is... that's exactly what I, I don't, I really don't want to, you know, I, I take a lot of inspiration from, from Catherine Hayhoe and communicating um, climate science. I think she's an incredible communicator and I don't, I don't, you, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. You can scare people into inaction. Cause I, I, I see it. I mean, I see it on Twitter. I don't know if there are, Real people on Twitter are bots. You can never. <laughs> Always sometimes. hard to tell. Yeah, Twitter, <laughs> but they, you just say oh, the, you see people just like, well, that's, what's the point? We're all, you know, the earth is, is doomed and things like that. And... Yeah, I have a particular example, even just from yesterday, where there was somebody on Twitter misrepresenting um, the head of NASA's climate unit, um, basically saying that everything is doomed everything's terrible we might as well just stop doing everything and yeah like you say it just turns people off so much that they throw their hands up and say well okay fine if i can't do anything then i might as well drive my suv to the shops yeah i i that, i saw that same uh twitter spot and it it, it put the <laughs> it, it went it quite the, wide <laughs> it did it did <laughs> Um, so it was. That's what put it in my mind for for today. I, mm. I thought that might be something interesting to to speak to you both about. I'm a big fan of uh, pragmatic optimism, where I kind of don't see the point of giving up. Like, what's the point of giving up? Like that that doesn't get you anywhere. You might as well try to make it better. Totally. Yeah, yeah. We, I think we need to move away from this narrative that fighting climate change will be a hardship for a a lot of people. I mean, it re- requires some lifestyle changes, that's for sure. But it can be used to improve people's lives wholesale in, in many in many different ways. So, um, I remember yeah. seeing a really fantastic cartoon that was like, "Oh, so if at the end of the century we say like, oh, so we improved um, our health, we improved our welfare, we improved biodiversity, we improved everything, but we didn't achieve climate like complete climate." change we didn't stop that i said well you've achieved a lot besides so it's worth it even just for that i probably summarized that cartoon really badly but (laughs) is that the kind of of famous one that's like um so we went and made a better world for nothing basically that yeah that's a much better way of putting it done thank you saving me (laughs) it's almost like you're made for this Uh, well thanks for that I don't know. Um, so this, yeah, I, I don't know. It's an interesting, because how, how often do you to, I, I often when I mention, you know, that I'm an oceanographer or some kind of climate relevant something, I mean, 
very often people lead with the like, so how how doomed are we, or how oh, you know, so what, is, is it is it hopeless? <laughs> and I think people are quite surprised when um, I don't just immediately reflect back their sense of like, no, everything's horrible. There's certainly many concerning things about climate change, but um, I'm kind of repeating myself a little bit. But I just like that pragmatic optimism of let's just try, let's just see what we can do, try to make things better. You know, and uh, like you said, that you can make a lot of things better in the process. S- Scott Denning, who's been on the podcast, is fond of reminding everybody that a ton of wealth was generated in the creation of our last energy infrastructure, which is the fossil fuel driven one, and that we can generate, we can create a tremendous amount of wealth again by recreating our energy infrastructure using, you know, cleaner sources. That it's, there's going to be lots of jobs associated with that, you know, people building wind turbines, maintaining wind turbines, solar farms, and, you know, whatever other techniques we want to throw into the mix. And which I just think is a nice reminder that, uh, you know, it's, it's not about living in a cave. It's not about running away and living in a cave and stopping all, you know, civilization. It's about actually kind of leveling up in a way. It's like doing things in a more efficient way and in a um, more scaled up way in a, in a greener way. The, um, the only bit that maybe I'm hesitating on a little bit of that is uh, is air travel. I don't know how we do the air travel thing, meaning, you know, air travel is really carbon intense. Um, and it's it's hard to get away from that. I understand there are some electric planes. I'm not an expert on this, but I don't think they have quite the range uh, of, you know, a, a, they do a not. jet. No, they, they do not. No. It's pretty um, impossible to get a battery big enough to transport a lot of tons of metal and stuff yeah, yeah. Yeah. like 21,000 feet in the air for 3,000 kilometers. Yeah. And well, thanks for letting me take us down this route because this is actually something I wanted to talk about a little bit that, um, and, and Tom, I want to get back to your research. So I, I promise I'm almost done. No, um, I'm happy to, to, to wander down any path. No, don't worry. It's cool. interesting. <laughs> so there has been this d- discussion on Twitter and I, I really, really appreciate these folks who are trying to, to do this, that like, they will say, well, you know, train travels better. It's more comfortable. It's more affordable. Um, you know, it's, it's better for the environment. And I kind of want to talk about how, well, we are going to lose something. Like it's not, it's not all sunshine and roses, right? Like the, everything I said, I stand behind a second ago when I was like, we can build a better world and we can level up. I think it's okay to, to mourn some things that we might, that we probably will lose. And I think one of those is being able to show up in Australia, you know, in, in a day, for example. Um, I mean, that sort of thing is, is, there's something kind of magic about that. You get a real feeling for just how big the planet is. You really, you know, you experience the change of seasons. You experience, um, you know, just the moon flips upside down because now you're in the Southern hemisphere and you're getting to experience that in like this short time scale that just feels like it take, takes you out of, it takes you out of, um, I don't know. It just gives you kind of this different perspective. Um, but flying to Australia, you know, especially for like a relatively short trip, that there is a lot of carbon associated with that. And if we're going to be serious about lower carbon emissions, then, you know, probably we do need to take fewer flights and we do need to, you know, scale that down as much as we can reasonably can. I don't know. I guess I just, I think in all the conversation about moving towards a better world, which I'm totally behind, I think it is okay to mourn some of the stuff that probably isn't um, going to be 
feasible anymore. But you need to appreciate also that it will just be a change. It won't necessarily be a complete removal. I mean, you're talking to someone who stopped flying short haul in 2008. I don't do planes unless it's absolutely essential. Um, And I really try to minimize, well, my definition of essential is quite (laughs) limited, let's say. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think enjoying the journey, changing the way we travel to focus more on the joy of getting somewhere rather than just having to get from A to B and for that yeah. being the entire purpose. Think something about traveling via train or boat or whatever it is over land and sea is that you really appreciate how you get there as well. Mm. And obviously yeah. that's not suitable for everybody. Sometimes you have a meeting and you have to get there and probably you should do that on the internet mm. now. Yeah, yeah, instead of flying there but for some things you do have to be there if you've got family and this is a thing of globalization we don't want to make the world smaller like the pandemic has made it but Mm. at the same time you also have to appreciate that it is a luxury to be able to travel the world and that luxury is not evenly distributed there are frequent flyers in this world who need to tone down their flying (laughs) (laughs) And there are people who've never got on a plane in their entire lives and probably won't because they live in countries which currently don't have the resources. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think that inequality is a really, yeah, I I think that is a really important point is the inequality. I guess the staggering amount of flying that's done by the richest, you know, 1%, 10% in the world. So um, Mm. I think that's, yeah, it's really important to keep in mind. It's a good point. Do you mind if I pivot us back to pivot? Oh, did I just say pivot? Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Do you mind if I take us back to, um, <laughs> I'm going to leave that in by the way. Good. Um, yeah. I, I believe in the whole, um, you know, show your, show your imperfections. Seamless transition. Yeah. Uh, this is a yeah. good segue. <laughs> oh man. Um, so Tom, I was, you know, thinking about your work and kind of wanting to steer the conversation maybe back and thank you so much for that Ella by the way that was really good that was really good but like I really appreciate what you said about about air travel um kind of off topic but that's fine (laughs) well it's all it's all climate stuff right no no that that was exactly that was exactly what we were talking about so that's that was totally relevant and good um so in kind of thinking back to your research world um and I this might feel like a job interview question and I apologize for that. It's not a job interview <laughs> question, but I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Where do you see some of the like big challenges in your field? Where are some of the potentials for, you know, big advances? Um, do you think there's anything that's likely to really um, level up your field in a big way? Or do you see it as being smaller incremental advances here and there? Incremental is not a put down, by the way. Incremental is good. I'm, I'm fine with incremental. Yeah. No, that's, I, um, I'm, Science is incremental, right? I think we're all used mm-hmm. to um, the very <laughs> slowest of increments. Um, yeah. No, that's a Glacial good question. Glacial pace. Oh, ah. nice one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's definitely stated, right? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I can always provide puns and dad jokes. Sorry, carry on. There's, so um, the biggest challenge is... Um, Sorry, I've lost, <laughs> lost track of the question. Uh, is that what you asked? Sorry, Dan, the biggest challenge. Yeah, what are some of the biggest challenges in your field right now 
or you could think of it as, you know, where are some of the biggest places where, oh, if we figured this out or if we could measure this, we would have, there would be a big step change in our ability to do science in this area. That's the kind of general topic area that I'm wondering if you could speak to. Yeah. So I, what immediately comes to mind is is not the challenge that I think we're, we're facing right now in, in the community is not so much a um you know measuring some parameter that's escaping us it, it's more that the um so this continuous record i i spoke about at the beginning um we're in we're in danger of of losing that because um Chrysat and uh isat both two um are the only polar focused um satellites we have in orbit at the moment and their the so the successes are not they're still in the planning stages, and it takes years and and and, lot, and you know millions of, of euros to to uh, to plan the satellite. And Chrysat is has been in orbit for nearly eleven years now, and satellites are only ever um, planned to, to to last you know a few years, three, four. If you get five years out of a satellite, you're doing really well. So so the Chrysat has been amazing. But if we don't get another satellite in orbit before either of these two fail, then then we will lose this this continuous survey, and that's a real challenge. But there's a challenge that is actively being addressed. So there are successes planned. So we um, we you know hopefully we can get one up in time, um, and if not, there are things we can do. We can use um, air bonds. So NASA did that between the ISAT one and ISAT two. They maybe this is. Um, Related back to the flying conversation, but they flew a series of flights um, with a with a laser altimeter mounted on it, um, and that that can be used to bridge the gap. So I think that's the yeah, that's the main challenge. We really would really like to to keep that this continuous this twenty five, you know, nearly thirty year time series we have now is is one of the greatest assets that we have in in, in altimetry. And having a continuous data set of anything in the polar regions is such an asset. So even if it's surface observations, I mean, in the part of the world I've done work in, you have maybe 12 years of surface observations and mm. that's already mm. a result. But you really want to be doing climate studies 30, 40, 50 years to see any real patterns and trends. So, I mean, 25 years of satellite observations is pretty incredible and must focus efforts to continue that <laughs> yeah and it's, it's weird to think about the possibility of having less data coverage you know we sort yeah, of you take it like for to granted. imagine yeah mm -hmm. we sort of like to imagine that as we go forward we'll have more and more and better coverage but you're right if we don't continuously put time and effort and money into that uh, into our monitoring system we'll we'll lose it it'll go away it'll dwindle and uh, so there's an important case to be made for continued funding there and support. Yeah, I guess maybe that's not it's more particularly relevant for for sea ice as well. So for land ice, there are other satellites we can use, but they don't fly as close to the poles. So you'll miss a top of mm -hmm. the top of Greenland, and you'll miss a lot of the centre of Antarctica. But there's you know there's not much going on in the centre of Antarctica. Um, mm -hmm. But you lose this record of sea ice thickness that we, we were speaking about. Um, and that's 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 critical as well because you know we're, we, we who knows what's going to happen to the sea ice cover over the next um, you know ten fifteen twenty years. Hmm. Yeah, it's been dropping 
really steadily in the Arctic, especially the mm. like September sea ice concentration. It's scarily linear, just down. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, over the course of the last several decades, just really re- a really clear climate change signal of that uh, decrease in sea ice. Ella, are there other science bits you wanted to talk about? I, th- I thought we could talk about the pathway stuff soon, but I wanted to make sure that you talked about the science bits that you wanted to talk about. I, th- I just had one last kind of question because there are quite different processes going on in, in Greenland or the Arctic and Antarctica. And I just thought maybe you'd have some uh, comment on like the differences essentially, because have you seen clear disparities between what's going on in Greenland and either the Antarctic ice shelves or Antarctic ice sheets. Even regions of Antarctica is a very big continent. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. So um, Antarctica in particular, most of the mass loss is in West Antarctica. So we, we, we like to split Antarctica into three. I'm sure you know this. And the Western part is um, where the ocean is warming uh, the fastest and where there's a, there's a series of huge... Um, marine terminating glaciers dotted across the West Antarctic coastline um, and, and, and warm water is able to get underneath the ice shelves and, and, and melt them from underneath and that's caused them to flow faster. I, I was involved in another study that so this is another really great use of altimetry you can um, you can use it to, to it, it measures changes in height due to both changes in ice flow and changes in surface the change in surface mass balance so either um, snowfall or, or melting, and, and you, you can get some additional information to distinguish between the two. Um, and we we found that uh, we did a study um, that showed that about a quarter of the entire area of of um, West Antarctica is now in a state of what we call dynamic imbalance, so where the, the, it's it's losing where the ice flow is thinning due to um, changes in ice flow. Basically, that's just a huge area. So yeah, Antarctica the the ice loss is mainly due to uh, changes in ocean temperature. It's only warmed by about a degree centigrade, but that's that's been enough to to you know cause real um, speed up and significant speed up. In Greenland, it's um, about fifty fifty. So there are also a series of glaciers in Greenland that are flowing out towards the ocean, and and, and they've um, it's warmed around there as well. Uh, but Greenland's further away from the poles, so it melts each summer, um, and that, that surface meltwater then will run off into the ocean as well. Um, and that's the, the the runoff, particularly in the 2010s, has um, increased both in in its magnitude and it's 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 more erratic now as well. So the the the, the there's been fluctuations in atmospheric circulation that have really affected. So there's been both cold years and um, warm years just in just in the past 10, 10 years. But 2012 and 2019 were record years in Greenland for 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 surface melting. Yeah, I was going to mention those. I mean, 2012, there was a, an event for, I think, I can't remember, there's a huge amount, a huge percentage of the ice sheet was melting for about five days. And part of that was like the enhancement due to these really thin liquid bearing clouds that kind of blanketed the whole ice sheet and just kept it really, really warm and enhanced melting. And then there was that heat wave, which we saw a record temperature set in Cambridge. 38.7 degrees or something like that. Um, and it was the same year that Greenland experienced a heat wave that was yeah. unprecedented. Yeah. I think there was some Xavier Fettweiss, who works at Liège, posted yeah, a series of, of comments 
on Twitter about the the heat wave and what it was kind of the sort of levels that models were predicting for the middle of the century happening in 2019 to give you kind of context of how unprecedented that was. Yeah, Xavier has his own surface mass plant model and he's great at communicating that on Twitter. The, uh, the, the, the 2012 event was particularly relevant to altimetry. Like, like you said, Ella, the, it, it was nearly the entire surface area was melting in those five days, even in you know, the highest right up to nearly up to the summit you know like over 2500 meters in elevation these areas were melting and that was a challenge for the altimetry because the radar won't doesn't can't pass through um travel through ice or water but it will travel a bit through the 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 snowpack so the the fern pack where the snow is densifying so we had um if you looked at a radar altimeter record of elevation change in 2012 then um you 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 think in the summer that it actually um, gains height, um, so you get this big step change in the time series, um, and that's because the meltwater then percolated down and refroze, and that created a new scattering horizon from the radar that was higher than the previous one. So oh, wow. it, it created this false elevation change signal, and I spent a bit of my PhD studying that. I'm, I'm, um, we we can it's it's pretty uh, well constrained to deal with it now. It's not it doesn't affect our measurements too much, but we have to deal with it. So that was that was very interesting when that happens. Yeah, that was my next question. How do you ah. control for something like that? Um, so we there are many many ways. Lots of people have have have, have looked into this um, because it's a singular event. You can just you can just add some step function and, and realign stitch your time series, series back together. Um, I looked at the when we were talking about earlier the low level waveform processing. Uh, that's what I looked at, and you can um, so it changes the 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 distribution of the scattering where the radar is scattering from more towards the from the surface than 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 um, just slightly below it. Um, so I was looking at how these waveforms changed because of this, and then you can relate that to the um, to the, the 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 changes in height and correct for it that way. Um, so yeah, there's lots of ways we can deal with it, but um, it was definitely <laughs> I think it was exciting when it first um, first happened. So is that happening during your PhD? No, I, I started a few years. Uh, I think I started in 2015, but there were well, there were a flurry of papers at the time when it when it came out. So um, lots, yeah, nice. Where did you do your PhD then? Maybe we can segue into the way you got there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I did my PhD at uh, Leeds, at the Centre for Polar Observation and Modelling, and I'm still there now. I, I started in 2015, and I've um, I've stayed on to do a postdoc. They sucked you in. Uh, Must be good. Yeah, I, I really enjoy working there. It's great. And I, I, I'm I'm from West Yorkshire. I'm a I'm a bit of a home bird, so I grew up in uh, Halifax, which is not not too far away. And I, I didn't move too far away, but I, um, um, I got into science quite late. Actually, I uh, it was my second go around at university. Um, was doing science. I originally, I first went left from sixth form. I didn't do any science A levels. Oh, I did chemistry to AS, but I was rubbish at it. <laughs> um, and I was, uh, I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Really, I was, I felt very. Um, yeah, and I lost and just a bit, a bit coasting. But I was interested in creative things more mm. back then. So 
Um, I actually did business studies for a year um, at university and really it just wasn't for me. Um, So I was going to ask what gave you some of the clues about (laughs) this doesn't seem like quite the right fit for me. I was interested in that transition of, you know, how do you discover that that's not the right path for you and how did you shift over to this more sciencey kind of path? So I just, I just wasn't, um, I just found myself not interested in it. Or I, 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 mm. I just wasn't engaged or just isn't, wasn't an area that I I'd, um, saw myself going into. I, I, I think when I was in sixth form, I felt like I had to go to university, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, and it's quite strange. And I think you're, you're tended to, to, to the, try to get shoehorned into a particular career, you know, as early as you're choosing your, your GCSEs, right? And I certainly had no idea what to do when I was, you know, 14, 15, never mind, 18. Yeah. Yeah, can I, I still say, wanted to be an actor at that yeah. age. <laughs> yeah, can I say as somebody who, like, went through a very different system, I find the whole, the age at which you're expected to start narrowing down here in the UK, I find that really intimidating. <laughs> It oh is, my god yeah you're like is. nine years old and they're saying so what do you want to be when you grow up and you're like i want to be an astronaut and they're like right you better start picking physics then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow no need um, to uh, force to... people down square holes yeah mm. and if you want to be like a, a medical doctor i say you need to you know you need to know when you're eight years old and you need to do all the sciences and all and all the maths and you can't explore anything else you want to explore um wow but so I, you had I, a bit of a change of heart at university or the second time you yeah. went to university yeah so i i i dropped out i finished that that year and then i dropped out and then i worked i was i worked in my the local sainsbury's stacking fruit and veg and i'd done that for for a while and i kept on doing that and um i kind of i've always i'd always had an interest in in science i suppose but more not i guess physics at secondary school isn't very glamorous it's rolling cars down hills and mm-hmm. um things like that but i i used yeah, to be which shape rolls the fastest yeah. down, the, <laughs> down the inclined plane um yeah. but I, I did find myself fascinated by you know particularly astrophysics that sort of thing i was fascinated by other planets and um this like the surfaces of other planets and I, I just, I had, you know, I was working from Sainsbury's and I thought while I'm figuring out what to do, I'd do a couple of open university courses. Um, so I just I did a couple of those. I did one that was like a basic physics one and one that was one more specifically on the planets. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And I thought, uh, you know, maybe I should, uh, this is, you know, this is something I wanted to pursue. I always felt like I wanted to contribute something. Um, in my work and, and I think I, I saw science as a way of, of how I could contribute I, I, I'm not I'm not cut out to to <laughs> to be a medical doctor or anything like that I'm far I'm far too squeamish um, <laughs> I always like talking about this pathway part because with like one exception everybody I've talked to has had a meandering kind of path where they really weren't sure and they're were exploring different options uh, only Hugh Griffiths has given me the answer that, like, <laughs> since I was a boy, I was playing with, you know, animals on the beach. And I, and I believe him. I think that's true. I don't think he's making that up. But, like, 
for most of us, for oh, the yeah. vast majority of us. Yeah. It's a very meandering I didn't path. do sciences until I got back to university, and then even then I switched my degree halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all so an it's illusion that scientists know they want to be scientists from tiny. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a story we construct afterwards, <laughs> after yeah. we are already scientists, then people make that narrative up. Um, yeah. Except for the very rare person who maybe really has had their... But that, that's that's an exception. That's an exception. What degree did you switch from, Ella? I did kind of international development and environmental science. So it was sort of relevant, but not. I, I gave up maths at 16 and I had to do degree level calculus to switch to meteorology. Well, not meteorology degree, but a degree that focused quite a lot on the hard sciences, let's say. And mm. um, it, it was an uphill struggle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> When you, have, I had the same. I had to do a, a foundation year, so I had to. Um, but you find you find a lot of doors can be closed when you you're speaking about these these pathways. I, I, I had very limited options in getting into science at university at, at that point. Um, mm. Only a handful of universities were doing these foundation years. Where I don't know if Leeds do this anymore, but I did like a f- physics and maths foundation, like A level sort level in one year and then if you pass that you could get onto their undergraduate program i think maybe they have like a condensed natural sciences one mm. um but there aren't many places or there, there certainly weren't when i was looking that were, that were offering that you think that would yeah. be a really useful thing to do it's all it helps it's yeah. all about um social mobility i think these they're really important to for offering people these sorts of opportunities um and yeah they should be encouraged i think yeah absolutely i mean I was undeclared my first year of university and um, you just took different courses. So in U.S. universities, you have these core classes that everybody has to take. So basically, you can spend the first year, year and a half just doing those before you even pick a, a you know what's called a major where you would then start taking more specific advanced level classes in your particular major. And so there's a lot more flexibility it does mean that it takes longer to get through right you're, you're a bit older when you get through it i guess that's one thing of the in the uk system if you really do know what you want to do from an early age i, I guess there is an advantage is that you really could just get started and hit the yeah. ground running but I, I don't know that's pretty rare i think i did my phd know. with someone who started and he was 21 it blew my mm. mind how did you do that so fast <laughs> you've done two Not, degrees by 21 what yeah. What? Wow. That is hard to wrap my head around. I know. Yeah. I still can't. So, Tom, what was uh, were your folks? What are they up to? Are they sciencey at all, or businessy, or what? What do they do? So, my mom, no, not so. My uh, my dad was um, a wood machinist. He used to make uh, furniture, and my mom. Actually, she she trained to be a, a teacher when I was a child. She did a, a biology degree um, at the Open University while she was uh, well, after she had me and my, my younger sister. So uh, my mum was always a big champion of science and trying to get me interested in science. I don't know if I was particularly interested in biology, um, mm-hmm. but my sister went down that path and she's a midwife now. But they were always a positive influence. They was just encouraging me whatever I, I wanted to do. Um, but I think secretly she was very pleased when I said I was going to study <laughs> physics at university. So, hmm. um, but they're retired now and they're enjoying 
um, to high life. Okay. I mean, if they're st- are they still in Halifax? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a nice part of the world to retire in. Yeah, yeah. Are you, are you familiar with it? Or I mean, not not hugely. My partner's yeah. from Blackpool, so you know okay, the, other, yeah. the wrong side of the Pennines. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you've got such nice hills yeah. near there, lakes. You name it. All surrounding me is just concrete jungle. It's not quite as nice. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're Spider-Man and you need some surfaces to, you know, swing throughout the city. Well, that's my night job. You know. <laughs> don't don't rumble me. Spider Ella. <laughs> so you're a podcast host, uh, boxer, and you're spider person. You've got to entertain yourself somehow, Dan. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lockdown. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, do you have any siblings? Yeah, so yeah, younger sister. Um, yeah, yeah, she also lives um, in Halifax, and and uh, she's a midwife. Um, she did a biology degree, and then she yeah yeah trained to be a midwife afterwards. Um, That's right. You did just you literally said that. So I think, uh, yeah. I guess I was wondering no, if you okay. had others. That's that's the, that's the only sibling. That's the only sorry. Sibling. Yes, maybe I misunderstood. <laughs> yeah, that, I was just one. Yeah, one sibling. Now, well, my no, parents just me, got. My parents just got a puppy, so I'm classing that as a new sibling. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no, I apologize if I'm clum- if I'm clumsy. So actually, I just I got the vaccine yesterday. Oh, um, congrats! And uh, it's 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 been yeah. I feel really happy to have gotten it. I'm happy my my number came up. Everybody needs to get it, right? So yeah, when your ticket comes up, go get it. You know for sure. Um, but the side effects have been kicking my butt a little bit. And uh, so if I seem, I'm already like a spacey person, but if I seem extra spacey <laughs> and clumsy, uh, I'm going to blame some of it on the vaccine side effects. So No, that's my, <laughs> my partner got hers a couple of weeks ago and she felt rough as well. Nice. Um, nice that she got it. Not not nice that she felt rough, but yeah, yeah nice that she got it. But she's fine now. So it's, 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 um, it's all good. Yeah. Totally worth it. Absolutely. Um. How have you found working in the pandemic? I mean, obviously it's been rough for everyone. Have you been able to, I mean, you, you mentioned that you were kind of, you had the momentum of all these previous, uh, the previous stuff you had done. And I guess you were kind of pushing those things out the door in terms of getting the papers out there. Um, has it been, um, have you been able to do much or has it been, oh, just to share, I, I've really had a tough time producing anything in terms of homeschool, there's homeschooling has been going on, and then just general yeah. stress, of course, and the general uncertainty, which is now slowly starting to lift as the vaccine rollout, you know, um, helps us get to a better place. But uh, yeah, I don't know how, how it's a terrible question. I'm sorry, but how have you found it? <laughs> no, it's it's, it's 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 good to talk about it because it's affected us all, hasn't it? I've I've found it tough. Particularly, I've found it particularly tough. Um, mm. The, the like you say I was I, was, I had a, a block of work that I had to, you know that I could push out and the, the well has, has run dry a bit mm-hmm. I'm in that um, transitionary phase I suppose in in well, you know after you finish your PhD and you you do a postdoc where I need to start thinking more long term about uh, research plans and proposals and you know what work can I do or what work can I get um you know employ other people to do or ask other people to do 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's a creative process, really. That's that's coming up with ideas, and, and this is just not a time to be creative. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, it's hard. Really hard. And, do you see yourself uh, staying in academia? Then it sounds like you do. Yeah, I do. I've this is I've, something I've wrestled with. I, th- I think everyone has imposter syndrome, but I particularly um, feel that. You know, I've had a, quite a, quite a successful year, so I'm probably playing a tiny violin here. But sometimes you, you <laughs> um, sometimes you just you're just like, why 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 will anyone take me seriously? Or, or is any <laughs> is this paper just rubbish and <laughs> it's all wrong? And then someone's going to read it. And, they can't all no. be rubbish. <laughs> true. True. <laughs> Um, they are so peer like, reviewed after all. So yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've been trying to I've been trying to focus on that, and um, if I can't do the actual work very well, maybe I can work on how I feel about doing work. So that's what I've been trying. My advisor likes to say that you're putting your pebbles on the pile. You know, that there's. A big mountain of science in this in this analogy, and that don't stress. You know, you're 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 helping to build something. You know, even if your contributions feel small, you know, you're helping to add to the the larger mountain of pebbles that is science. I think it's really, it's really nice important yeah. to value yourself beyond productivity. I think at the end of my PhD, I was really struggling with that. I used to have a poster mm. on my office wall that just said, your value is not your productivity. Yeah, and I love that. So I needed it as a reminder every single day. Next to the one that said, just write the damn thing. <laughs> Both of those got me through. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so important yeah. to reframe the way that you see your self-worth because you're not just about the number of papers you churn out or the, yes. the work that you do. Yeah. It's about you as a person. And like you say, reframing how you feel about doing work in itself is really uh-huh. important because then you can contribute your pebbles to the pile. Yeah, I love that so much. I just got into a little discussion with a colleague about this over email, and I took much more of your point, Ella, of like we have value beyond our publication count. You know, H index be damned. All these things are just <laughs> self self torture methods we've invented to make each other feel bad. Um, <laughs> that that we have this, you know, we have much more value going just beyond some sheer number of papers we publish or citation count or anything. Um, I mean, yeah, if we're researchers, we need to publish regularly and we need to try to make good contributions. But I, I really resonate with what you said. And I think it's so important for your mental health because um, getting obsessed with paper counts, citation counts, I mean, that way lies a kind of madness. That way mm. lies, you'll never be happy. You'll never, you'll always feel inadequate if you're always comparing yourself to these these metrics. And yeah, I kind of hate how Google Scholar, if you pull somebody up, they just throw the citation number like right there and then like right below the picture i'm like let's not i mean okay yeah citations are important that's fine that's fine but like do we have to boil a person down to that number like can't can't we take a broader view of a person Mm. than just like here's their citations i don't yeah i'm glad you said that (laughs) it's reminding me that everyone has imposter syndrome as well and it Mm. perhaps feeds into that because if everyone's got imposter syndrome then what are we all afraid of? Because everyone is comparing themselves to these unrealistic metrics that everyone else supposedly is doing better than them. But really, <laughs> we're all just winging it. 
Yeah. Maybe that's just me. About that. No. <laughs> you, can, you can always find somebody to make yourself feel bad. Like if you want to feel bad about your productivity or whatever, you can always find somebody to make you feel that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's professions on Twitter that, you know, I, I work six to 60 hours a week. Is this, <laughs> is this okay? No, not really. Well, not for me personally anyway. No. No, we've got, we've got more worth beyond just productivity. Like you said, Ella, it's, it's so important. Oh, I, I remember where I was going with that though. So I got into this discussion with this person, with this colleague and I got called a, I took your point and I got called a hopeless idealist, which is fine. I'll take that. <laughs> I'll, I'll be a hopeless idealist. I'll, I'll wear that as a badge of, of pride. Um, <laughs> you need a few idealists in the mix, in the mix there, don't you? Or you know, nothing ever changes if you just have a bunch of people who are just happy with how the system is mm. and not pushing back at all, then the system just stays the same. You need some number of people kind of skeptical of the whole thing. Yeah, you need <laughs> creativity. Yeah. To mm. imagine the future, like you were saying, Tom, you need to be thinking creatively and outside the box. Otherwise, everything stays the same. Mm. And science That's really right. isn't tr tr treated like that. Like I was saying, about physics, it's pushing cars down a hill and, and seeing how long it, it takes. And that's just not, you know, I don't, that just turns younger people off, I think. Um, and yeah, it is a really just, creative thing, science. Yeah, you have yeah. to think creatively, and that is never really communicated to kids when they're choosing how to, what they want to do. And yeah. science is so creative, and the the increasing connection between art and science, I think is only a good thing in encouraging that. Yeah. And I hope it is a, is a, a route to addressing a lot of the, you know, the diversity issues that we see in, in, in science. I think more ways of communicating it to people and getting people engaged can only, can only help. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're totally right that for some reason, we don't frame science as the creative thing that it is. It's a, it's a fairly constrained in some way form of creativity because, you know, we have all the data that does put constraints on how we present things, but it's still creative. I mean, you, there's still plenty of room for not just how you present things, but what kind of experiments do you design? What mm -hmm. kind of, um, what can you do with this data? How can you pull novel and interesting things from it? Um, what sort of conceptual models do you design? Um, you know, like in your your digital models, what are the options there? What are the there's there's tons of choices that might seem like technical, purely technical choices, but they uh, I can imagine they affect your end product. And I I feel like I'm rambling a bit as a result of the vaccine side effects. And I should probably just let Ella take over for the rest of the podcast and go go take a nap. <laughs> yeah, well, snooze snooze well. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah, I mean, I haven't got any real specific questions beyond maybe where do you see things going? If you Have you had any exciting creative ideas about what you'd like to do next? I don't know where you are in your postdoc. Are you close to the end or are you thinking uh, beyond that now? I'm, I'm close to the end of my current contract, but I think uh, re renewal is being... Um, that is in the pipeline, so they're quite fortunate. So I think I'll be trying to stay in Leeds if I can. Um, Great. But I've been, yeah, that's been eluding me so far is the um, is the next steps. I think I've been um, 
I haven't had as much time as I'd like to, to dedicate to, or as much um, energy to, to, to dedicate to that. So that's, that's definitely next, is, is figuring, out, figuring out what's next, I suppose. I mean, we're all figuring it out. I think it's yeah. very easy to say, oh, yeah, what's next, when it doesn't, it's, yeah, as we said before, it's very difficult to think beyond the current moment at the, in this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Dan, what are your you normally have your zinger questions? Oh, the, um, what, what have you learned? <laughs> yeah, that's the, the one. Yeah, yeah. What I've have you learned? Questions. Set of questions about what have you learned about um, different areas. So, yeah, we can go through those. So, the idea is, you tell me something that you've learned, a lesson you've learned in these areas is kind of a nice way to sum up the podcast and summarize and thanks for reminding me Ella um, <laughs> so and you can give really short answers you can give slightly medium answers feel free to do what you like there but um, we'll just launch into them so what is something you learned about science something that maybe surprised you about the way that it works that you didn't know before we we touched on the creativity part a little bit mm. is there anything anything specific that you noticed that surprised you I think it's how excruciating it can be sometimes. It can be really challenging, especially when you're you feel that you're so close to to solving a, a particular problem, and then um, then you you know you realize something like X is 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 you need to account for X or um, you know Y is 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 at play. But that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. I think that it certainly. Requires more patience than maybe I um, thought I would need going into it. Yeah, that's a that's a very relatable answer. Definitely, of... science is excruciating and incremental, <laughs> <laughs> but rewarding at the end of it. I think maybe we should. Yeah. <laughs> we should just put that right in our proposals. It should just be in the title: <laughs> excruciating <laughs> and incremental. <laughs> EAI. It's a really good acronym. <laughs> Excruciating and incremental study of the Weddell Sea. <laughs> um, yeah, what's something that you've learned about academia? And uh, I apologize for the weird lighting that you're seeing. You are blessed not, right now, Dan. Not, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can touch by the hand of God. <laughs> to, to the yeah, to the listeners. So we've got this sunlight streaming in that I can't seem to fix. That is making this kind of, oh there we oh, go I, oh. i'm trying it was making this really like shimmering light effect into the camera so we had to talk about it of course <laughs> we couldn't just not talk about it um but what's something you've learned about academia something that surprised you and it could be different than science you know that could just be navigating departments and institutes and programs and all of that sort of thing that's a good question um i think what i've been i've enjoyed is how collaborative my field is i never feel alone working on something um i don't know if that's true for all fields i do feel like sometimes progression a particular career progression for early career scientists is quite can be quite obtuse and hard to, to figure out what you know particularly in the like within the uk university um sector I guess they're two very different, unrelated points. I don't know why I went into both of those, but <laughs> I hope that they are good answers. Definitely. Mm. Oh, I yeah, think, yeah. 
I can relate to both of those. Yeah. <laughs> How about writing? What's something you've learned about writing? That it um it doesn't have to be science writing doesn't have to be dry and it doesn't have to be a chore to read. I don't know whether I I'm close to achieving that yet, but that's something I I I I would like to especially when I'm at the stage of my career if I'm working with other people I, I want to encourage that's part of the creative process of science is, is presenting it and I think science writing can be fun and engaging and not um and and accessible to anyone I don't want someone to read this and and then you know when you when you're reading a physics textbook and then there's like an equation and then <laughs> it's just like and then it's simply rearranging this gives this and you're just like oh, hang on a second but there's how about, and why <laughs> <laughs> there's about 30 yeah. steps that have been missed out here yeah um, i think on one that. of the reasons i asked you onto this podcast was because i really enjoy the way you write oh thank you so that. it thank is you. working <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of feedback <laughs> oh, oh good. Nice. good that's really nice thank you that's a nice compliment yeah i was thinking tom the uh, the thing you were talking about the it's kind of we used to pick on this in physics uh, grad school all the time, the the kind of famous dense phrase you see in these old physics textbooks that it, it never actually literally said this, but we like to pick on it as like, well, it's trivially obvious to the casual observer <laughs> that... <laughs> Rearranging X for V will obtain... So there's these two, you know, completely different equations, you know, separated by that one line. <laughs> Just like it's trivially obvious that if you do this, um, <laughs> I have I real know, beef little... with the word trivial because it's it's yeah. totally relative, right? It's not it's yeah. trivial to you. It's not it's not trivial to me. It's, it's exactly been, it's caused me great pain. But... <laughs> exactly, <laughs> torturously. No, <that's> right. <laughs> yeah torturously and incrementally <laughs> we can show torturously and incrementally that this equation <laughs> can give you this other equation we've incrementally um, gone from excruciating to torturously <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my science God. isn't all bad let's just say that it's really enjoyable yeah. and collaborative and great fun yeah <laughs> absolutely or i always like the uh, this is left as an exercise for the reader to work this out <laughs> yeah. Because I've well, never done it and I don't know how I got here. Because <laughs> it's the subtext. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Like, because I lost the pages of notes that I, <laughs> where I derived this, and I don't want to do it again. That's but I'm funny. pretty sure it was right. Yeah. <laughs> One of my fellow students turned that in for a homework assignment once. They say, "Well, I'm going to leave this as an exercise for the reader, <laughs> uh, to the the person who's grading it." How about um, what's something you've learned about the cryosphere? Something that surprised you about the cryosphere? Oh, wow. Um, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, I, well, I, I, I learned everything about the cryosphere in my mm. PhD. Um, mm. I suppose what I found quite interesting is that there's a, um, there's a whole hydrological network underneath both ice sheets. There's a, you know, systems of, of, of lakes that are draining and exchanging water. Mm. And um, you, I just thought it was... Um, well, I didn't even realize how thick they were before I did my PhD. You know, Antarctica's like four kilometers thicker. It's the, the ice is it's at its highest point. So I just, uh, yeah, they're just really, I think that's why I was drawn to them. I said that I was like, I liked other planets, but then you can flip that and there are, you know, alien landscapes on Earth and, and they're just as fascinating. 
um, and maybe it's nice to learn about the, the planet you live on a bit more. The closest yeah. thing to another planet you can get to on Earth, I think. Yeah, definitely. That's why it's so it's so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. The the I only got to go on one research cruise, but we went into the Weddell Sea in the sea ice, and it absolutely did feel like an alien landscape. It was so bizarre and interesting. And uh, you know, Ella, I'm sure you saw a bit of that too. Just that really, it's just not what our brains are used to processing. You know, big yeah, just a flat blue. expanse of white is just yeah. not normal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Um, that's all the have you learned questions I've got on my little little list here. Do you have one, Ella? Did you, do you, I don't know if just one. Speaking of creativity, has one appeared in your mind? Oh no, <laughs> creativity on the, on the spot. Oh no, sorry, <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. You, you don't have to. You don't have to. It's fine. I really okay. just wanted well, to give you an opportunity. Well, if I can think of one, yeah, if you can think of one, that's fine. Um, is there anything else we want to talk about? I feel like we've we've done a a nice coverage of we talked about. Um, you know, altimetry quite a bit and glaciology touched on a little bit of the causes and things and um, talked about your pathway into science the, um, the I did get one listener who wrote in and I don't I've kind of hesitate to ask because I don't really like to put people on the spot about this but um, it is kind of a listener request to maybe hear a bit more from us scientists about what do we think we should do about the climate crisis, you know, um, you know, what's the sort of big, what are some of the big actions that, that you'd like to see happen? And maybe I'll frame it this way. Don't feel like you have to give a comprehensive picture. Maybe you can just pick one or two things that you'd really like to see happen in response to the climate, um, crisis. Would you like to speak to that? Yeah. Well, that's, um, that's a big, that's a big question. It's a, it's, I think it's good to speak about this. I, I suppose, um for me i i would like to see more broad changes on the the policy level i i individual action is in, is important um but it's, it's it's not the whole puzzle and i i particularly when i i if i've spoken to the media in the past and i try not to get sometimes they try to draw you into the individual action and that that you know that takes the the spotlight away from the the, the corporations and the, the policy um mm. and i think yes. i think we're we're getting there i hope we're getting there i, I read there was a there was a, a united nations poll a couple of weeks ago it was in the news and it was it was like two-thirds of people at least worldwide across all age bands think that this is a climate it's an emergency and so and in the uk it was really high it was like 80 percent or something like that mm. So I, 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 I'm not a policy expert, so I don't want to. It's not my place to recommend mm. specific, yeah, that's fair. actions. But I, I, I just want. To, I like to encourage people to speak about it, and and especially when I talk to to young people, I is I find I've, I used to when I first started like speaking in schools and things, I've, I've got myself worked up about how do I communicate this to to kids? They can handle. They they know it. They can handle it. Um, mm. But I don't mm. want to. But again, they, they, they're the ones that have to bear the brunt of it, and I don't want to, to make them. Again, while we're speaking about despair and, and hopelessness, they absolutely yeah. shouldn't yeah. feel that. So I, I, I would like to see, I just, yeah, I just ask people to, to speak to people they care about who maybe are less interested. And it's not mm. about who's right and who's wrong. It's just about what's, 
what's if this this is important to you know this is important to me and and i you know i think this is why i think it's important and then i really struggle with how polarized society is these days and i think yeah we need to meet in the middle and and, and of course like people can make individual choices and and it doesn't you know for now i don't think it has to be all or nothing nothing or you know large scale suffering but sorry i've gone off into a <laughs> no, no, <laughs> winded ramble but no, it's all relevant. Um, yeah, yeah, that's how that's how I. If feel. you give people the education and you talk to people mm. about climate change, then you're empowering them with the tools that they can use to make decisions themselves. Whether that's demanding change from people who are in power, whether it's demanding that corporations actually stop emitting so many emissions, or organizing in their local community, you know, whatever climate action looks like to those people if you give them the tools by talking about it, then they can go away and do those actions that help and contribute in whatever way feels appropriate to them. Yeah. Yeah. Fully agree. And I think that's like what you said about local important is local community is really important. You can just engage with your local community and it goes out from there. I went to a school and there were kids that were building um dams just in out of like uh twigs because there was a really there's a lot of flooding in that area um and they just got interested in that way and then um it just all you know if everyone is engaged in their local area then we're all dealing with the everywhere <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah yeah it's really good well i really uh no that was all very relevant i don't feel like you went off on a tangent today. that was <laughs> that was all you know Germain to the discussion. Germain's not a word I use very often, but I think I used it correctly in that case. <laughs> My PhD yeah. supervisor uses it a lot, and it, I, I never use it. I find it it sounds like it's wrong. It I've does just sound like I've, it's wrong. I've learned this word. Are you saying Germain as in someone's name? Uh, German with an e on the end. Ah. But it's just it's just rel- it just means relevant, right? That's all yeah. it means. I it's think. not germane to the it? discussion. Yeah, it's oh. not relevant. Yeah, I hardly ever used this. I was kind of surprised to hear it come out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the thesaurus, internal thesaurus is Fine. brought out. Germain. Yeah, relevant to a subject under consideration. Well, <laughs> there you go. Um, That's something well, I've learned, a new word. <laughs> yeah, I there definitely will take that. There you go. <laughs> Good. Well, Tom, thanks so much for your time. Is there uh, anything else to, that you wanted to chat about? Uh, no, I just I, thanks for having me, and it was really nice to speak to you both. And um, it's a shame we can't, can't meet in person in this time, but hopefully I'll be able to meet you sometime soon. Yeah, yeah rectify yeah. that one day. Mm. <laughs> yeah, hopefully before too long, actually, because uh, things are going in a reasonably positive direction right now, which is is really nice. I agree. About yeah, time. Let's, let's have some <laughs> some hope in here. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, Tom. I really appreciate it, and thanks, Ella for arranging the, this episode and My pleasure. for joining thank us. Thank you. Thank you really both. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. And now I got to figure out how to <laughs> stop. This is a new, new platform. For, so like, <laughs> there's a stop recording button and there's a leave. So I guess I'll stop the recording. Yeah. But yeah thanks, don't thanks. Leave. <laughs> My, my <laughs> leave button is grayed out. So I'm trapped here forever. I think. Are you? <laughs> oh, okay. That seems right. Can you not leave while I'm recording? I'm going to stop it and see. There you have it, our conversation with Tom Slater. Thanks very much, Tom, for 
appearing on the podcast and for having that really nice chat with us. Thanks to Ella Gilbert. Ella actually found Tom. She is uh, the person who suggested that we talk to Tom. So thanks to Ella for finding a great guest for the show and for being an amazing co-host as always. It's been so excellent working with you on the show. Thanks to you listeners for downloading, subscribing, leaving reviews, all appreciated. It all helps the show, helps us keep going. Thanks to Chelsea Baker for support. Here's some more credits. We've got uh, people who work on this show now. It's excellent. We've got Sean Williams Page uh, as our editor. She's our editing services person. We've got uh, Lillian Blair, who does the uh, audio engineering consulting. She basically uh, taught me a lot about how to properly use GarageBand (laughs) and all the settings in it, uh, even though I've been trying to use it for years. But she's a real pro. She knows what what to actually do. Okay, yeah, I guess that's it. So take care of yourselves. I hope you're all doing well. Uh, If you have suggestions for future guests, please do feel free to get in touch and recommend them. Um, can't really make any guarantees, obviously, but, you know, I really like uh, to, to try. I, I like to try to get those suggestions on the air when we can the air, so to speak. you say air anymore? I don't think you do. Anyway, take care. Bye-bye.